0: All right, so um, what I'm going to try to do is go through this uh, particular presentation about trauma in pregnancy and try to highlight the things that that really matter to us. Um, Some of this will be familiar, a lot of it won't. The reason that all these facts and issues are coming up is is it's going to try to set pregnant women sort of physiologically apart from uh, other types of humans that we take care of and that they have very specific unique uh, properties that change how we view them, and we're used to looking at human beings as having all their parts in the same place and all their physiology in the same place. Unfortunately, uh, pregnant women are are not exactly uh, in that group. They have um, trying to not to, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, they're they're different, and so. Um, th- how we view their physiology is different and we will make conclusions incorrectly and sometimes not uh, to their detriment if we're not aware of some of these issues that are going on so that is a lot of the focus of this is trying to get you uh, sort of in the mindset of of how to approach a pregnant patient and what are the things that you're going to think about differently when it comes to trauma So this is uh, the classic case we all fear. We hardly ever see one of these, thank God. But uh, probably some of us will be confronted by this at least once in our careers. A young 28-year-old pregnant female is hit by a car. uh, Comes in as a critical trauma. Vital signs are are all abnormal, uh, very hypotensive, tachycardic. Uh, Physical exam very quickly as she rolls in the door. You mash on her belly. Her belly is soft, and the uterus fundus is at the xiphoid, meaning essentially she is term. Uh, and you start your aggressive uh, resuscitations, but in spite of everything you do, she arrests. And so it's like, now what? What are you supposed to do? And by the end of this lecture, yeah, right, call OB, right. By the end of this lecture, right, you will, you will uh, get to, to It's a little more complicated than that. But yes, that's part of the issue. We'll sort of get you some idea of what you're supposed to do with this. Now, this is the poster child for what terrorizes us, but this is not what we see. I'm going to show you what we do see, and they're usually not this severe, Uh, and so that's where the challenge comes. All right, so trauma in pregnancy is absolutely without doubt the number one cause of maternal death that is not related to the pregnant state itself. So if you are a woman and you are pregnant and you are going to die from that experience, it's not going to be uh, because, uh, and it's not a pregnancy-related issue, the most common cause of death is trauma. All right. And it's not rare. About 60%, 6% to 7% of all patients who are pregnant will have some form of trauma happen to them. And minor trauma, as we'll see in a minute, is not always so minor. Um, the most common cause of fetal death that we care about is this, placental abruption. There are other things that can kill a fetus, you know, direct head trauma that doesn't happen very often. What does them in what we worry about all the time is this one. And that's where we're focusing on is dealing with is there an abruption or is there not because that's going to drive the things like DIC and everything else, bleeding, blah 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 blah. So that's that's the thing that that really drives our our concern. Um, there are three kinds of trauma. No duh. The kind of these these are the same, but they slightly have um, different ways of presenting in trauma patients, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to go over these very briefly. Obviously, there is blunt trauma. Um, motor vehicle accidents are probably the most common one, but don't rule out assaults. Pregnant women who come in, especially in the third trimester, who quote fell down the stairs or slipped on a bar of soap or something. Um, it is frequent that pregnant women get abused by their spouse or by their significant other, and so uh, pe- Pregnant women are much more likely to get beat up than normal women, so um, that's a problem. Penetrating trauma, obviously, we'll talk about that. That becomes an issue. But also one thing that's kind of weird is burns. Now, the burn treatment per se doesn't change any, but that the fetus is much more sensitive to carbon monoxide than is the mother. And the fetus is kind of like a carbon monoxide sink. So uh, it saves the mother at the expense of the fetus. Fetal hemoglobin really hangs on to carbon monoxide. And so there's a shift from maternal hemoglobin to fetal hemoglobin of the carbon monoxide. So when you get a maternal level and you go, oh, it's only 10%, not a big deal, um, that is a big deal because the fetus is going to be higher. And normally, around twenty percent, we start to get concerned, so we 'll never know what it is in the, in the fetus we 'll only know what 's in the mother. But if the mother has higher levels, we need to be concerned because it 's going to be even higher in the fetus and Of course, lethal fetal exposure can occur in the absence of non lethal or in the presence excuse me of non lethal exposure in the mother. So this becomes an issue for us as much as burn management. OK Now we get into all of this stuff about how pregnant women are different and why it'll matter for trauma purposes. The first thing is essentially that uh, their plasma volume goes up substantially, about 45 to 50% by the time they're in the third trimester. Why do we care about that for trauma? Because that means they can bleed a whole lot and have normal vital signs. They're, they have like an extra tank of, of, uh, of fluid to swim around in. So they, and normally we think of well, you know, at 15 to 20 percent of, of circulating blood volume loss, you start to see tachycardia, and at 30 percent, you start to see high hypotension. Blah 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 blah. Those rules don't apply to pregnant women. They can lose up to 45 to 50 percent of their circulating blood volume before they manifest any findings for this. So that gets promessed when they roll in and they're, they're normotensive and they're not tachycardic. It doesn't mean anything. Blood pressures tend to drop as as, uh, um, pregnancy progresses, so it usually maxes out around the second trimester. So somebody who is ninety-five over sixty and has had trauma may not, in fact, have any issues going on with them because that could be normal for them. On the other hand, eighty over sixty or eighty over fifty, you could probably say pregnant or not. That's not okay. So there's a limit to how far this goes. Usually, it's about fifteen to twenty millimeters of mercury lower during the second trimester, but you know, use common sense. Uh, I don't know anybody who's normal at 80 over over 50 when they're pregnant. 90 over 60, I've seen one or two. I'm a little anxious about it, but I can blow that off, but not more than that. So keep that in mind. The other problem is that they lose their ability to vasoconstrict. So even if they do start to bleed out, they can't do anything about it, especially in the second trimester. So um, they will not vasoconstrict. They'll they'll just drop. So they'll go from normal, 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 and then boom, zero. So they won't vasoconstrict and give you a warning. Uh, as you probably are aware by now, but I'll mention it anyway, uh, especially in the third trimester when you have this 25-pound bowling ball pressing on your lower abdomen, it tends to compress the vena cava, and so venous return gets compromised, and you can have problems with blood pressure, even though you may not have anything wrong with you if you stop venous return. So uh, obviously we want to try and put them on the left lateral decubitus position. Now, if somebody's sick, how are you going to do that? Obviously, you can't just take the person... And Push them up on their side when they need to be intubated and they're sick. So what you end up doing is they put them on the backboard supine, and you can stick stuff under the backboard and tilt them forward somewhat. So they remain sort of in a in a relatively stable position on the backboard, but you can still get them, and you don't have to get them like at 90 degrees. You know, 15, 20 degrees sometimes is enough just to get the uterus off. And the other thing you can do is just take your hand and push. So if you push the uterus from right to left, and if you can't tilt them, and sometimes you can't while your colleague's intubating them, um, you can push the uterus to the left and try to decompress it off the vena came. All right, So big deal there. All right, there's some hemologic consequences. Because of this expanding intravascular volume, they get a physiologic anemia. What does that mean? It means that their volume expands faster than their red cell mass. Both go up. They get more red cells and they get more volume, but they get more volume than they get more red cells. And so their quick drops. Uh, so if you see somebody with a hemoglobin, or excuse me, a hemoglobin at 32 to 34%, that's nothing. That doesn't necessarily mean they've just bled out a massive amount. They were 45, and now they're 34. This is physiologic, especially when you get out to the third trimester because of this expanding fluid that is more than the expanding red cell mass. You can see white counts this high. This, I always throw this in here just to raise the issue about white counts. But if I saw a white count of 18,000, would I say, oh, that's just because they're pregnant? No. That would maybe be what we're going to ultimately conclude. It's nice to know that you can have a white count of eighteen thousand, but I would not go. Aha! We don't have to worry about the possibility of sepsis or UTI or anything else because the white count of eighteen thousand is just because they're pregnant. Probably not, but it could be. Put that in the back. If you end up doing a thorough diagnosis, you can't find squat, and the person looks like a rose and is like, "Oh, doc, I got to go home. You know, I got to I got to pick up my kids. I got to meet my husband." Um, then. Um, it's all right to uh, invoke that rule. Ah, the white kind of 18,000 is probably because they're pregnant. But it's a sort of a diagnosis of exclusion. Keep that in mind. Obviously, also, fibrinogen levels go up. And so a normal fibrinogen level in the third trimester of pregnancy is not a good idea. It's not something you want to see. This is not a big deal, uh, other than to say that they're, uh, they're going to be, if you do get a, a, a basic metabolic panel, their bicarb may be low, it doesn't mean that they're acidotic. They tend to hyperventilate, and so they drop their PCO2, and to compensate, especially later on in pregnancy, they drop their bicarb. So uh, a low bicarb does not mean that they're acidotic necessarily. So as you can see, it's starting to get more and more difficult, because the things we rely on normally to sort of give us a clue that badness is going on, doesn't always work in pregnant patients. Um, You can see glucose and a couple of white blood cells uh, periodically in uh, a pregnant woman uh, from a urine sample, but you never should see protein or RBCs. Those are always abnormal. And keep in mind that in the third trimester, as the uterus gets really big, it pushes the bladder out from underneath the pelvis, and it now becomes an exposed organ, so it is more uh, susceptible to rupture in uh, blunt trauma. A couple other things just to make our lives interesting. Especially in the third trimester, the abdomen does not respond to irritation as it normally would. The peritoneum is not as sensitive, so you lose rebound in gardening um, as as a finding of of perforation or irritation. Um, Alkaline phosphatase can be elevated. This is usually because of the fetus, so an alkaline phosphatase of, of 250 doesn't mean they have gallbladder disease. Um, Something to keep in mind, and the reason why we're very aggressive about resuscitating, is the pituitary gets a lot bigger in pregnant women, especially by the third trimester. And as it gets bigger, it demands more blood flow. And so if their blood flow suddenly drops, they're at risk for infarcting their pituitary, and that's why, because it gets much bigger and its metabolic rate goes up. So it's very important not to let their pressure drop if you can possibly avoid it, because is really a bummer. If you end up with no pituitary, your life is screwed for the rest of your life, and you really don't want to do that if you can avoid it. Uh, the uterus is not capable of autoregulation. So that if the mother drops her pressure, the baby drops her pressure. Uh, the perfusion is it, the uterus can't sort of do what the brain does. It cannot autoregulate. Again, another reason why we're going to be overly aggressive about resuscitating uh, pregnant women if there's any risk. All right, so the principle of management, we talked a little about the left artery cubitus position and how to get around that. If we can't do that, um, we want to increase our resuscitation. All the things I've just laid out to you complicate your ability to assess if bleeding is going on acutely. They don't do anything they're supposed to do, and you can't wait. By the time you get the tachycardia and the hypotension, the baby's already ischemic and you're behind the eight ball. They've lost a huge amount of blood. So you have to be more aggressive with pregnant people, two IVs, increase your resuscitation volume. If they normally give one liter, give two, um, just to make sure that that you don't end up regretting your um, uh, false sense of security, that, that nothing's going on. Uh, a couple other things here. I want to uh, emphasize uh, x-rays. Um, obviously, we don't want to x-ray people if we don't have to, but I would feel really good if the life I saved because I got a CT scan, got cancer 40 years later, rather than I cured the cancer by killing the baby in the emergency department that day. So I'm not happy about cancer in 40 years, but I'm a lot more unhappy about a dead baby that could have been saved if I'd just gotten the CT scan, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, um, obviously, you don't want to be cavalier about it. But if they need films, they need films. All right. So they come in. You, you start your resuscitation. There's a couple of weird things you want to worry about. There's this thing called maternal-fetal transfusion, um, and that's bad because if you if you have an Rh negative mother and an Rh positive baby, you sensitize the mother, and she can never then give birth to another Rh positive baby because you get fetal hydrops. So you want to prevent that, and you can do that by giving them Rhogam, which is a sort of an immunoglobulin that can block that response. The problem is making the diagnosis. Now, we'll all order this thing called a Kleinhauer-Betke test, which basically looks for circulating fetal cells in the maternal circulation. The problem with this test is it's not very sensitive. It takes 5 cc's of fetal blood going into the maternal circulation of a positive test, but it only takes 0.1 cc of of fetal blood to sensitize the mother. So if you had 1 cc of fetal blood going into the mother, she will be sensitized but you'll have a negative klein hauer becky test. So not the biggest thing in the world. So why do we do it then? We do it because overall, it tells us how much Rogaine to give. If there's a big amount of maternal fetal transfusion, we want to give more than the standard dose of Rogaine. Rogaine at 300. in service every year. Remember this, the klein Betke is on the service all the time. Yeah. The, uh, 300 micrograms of Rogaine, which is the standard dose, will neutralize a fetal maternal transfusion of about 30 cc's. Yeah. Now, if you have more than that, you've got to give more Rogan. Well, how are you going to know if you got more than that or without a klein horbecki You can't. So this tells you, while there's, you know, especially in the third trimester, they can be a fair amount of fetal maternal transfusion and the baby still be alive. So this is an important test in that situation to tell you how much Rogan to give. It's not a yes, no. It doesn't tell you whether you should give Rogan, only if you're going to give Rogan, how much do I give? The good news is you don't need to give it right away. You've got about 72 hours. This is not something you will know, like oh my god—it's like the life-saving tetanus shot. You know, it—you it, know, it can take it, if they get their tetanus shot in two or three days, it's not the end of the world. So if they if they get their row game, you know, 24, 36 hours down the line, not a big deal. You want to save them first, get them to the OR. That's more important than giving them a row game. Somebody's going to have to follow it up, but it's not critical. We do it in the ED. Okay. Any questions about that? There's a whole thing that talks about mini-Rogam in the first trimester, and the truth is this is all witchcraft. There's no science behind this whatsoever, and even the OB people say there's no science behind it. But because no one dies in Southern California, they're all murdered by physicians, we don't want to be guilty of murdering anybody. So we give this because somebody who's smart thought maybe possibly on alternate Tuesdays when the moon is full that maybe this might help prevent early... Fetal maternal trans, uh, transfusions in the first trimester. There's no evidence that there's enough blood in a fetus to do this, but this is what we have done. It is our practice, and we all admit that it's probably witchcraft, but we do it anyway. All right. So here's the rest of the stuff we talked about. Okay. Um, DIC screens, I'm uh, getting a little late here, so I'm not gonna get too much into this. I wanna get into the next set of stuff. Uh, oh yeah, I do wanna mention this, vasopressors. Um, this is not a good thing to use in pregnancy if you can possibly avoid it. Because when you add vasopressors, you also vasopress the uterus. So you may be improving maternal brain and cardiac and possibly renal, although probably not renal, but at least brain and cardiac perfusion if you add a pressor, But you may not, uh, you definitely won't improve uterine perfusion because you're going to cause ischemia to the uterus. So this is like. When you really are starting to realize that I may not be able to save either one of them, um, I've got to do something and I don't want to operate because I can't, I'm, I'm an emergency physician. Your last, you know, the thing you, that's at the bottom of your bag of tricks is vasopressors. All right, when the patient rolls in the maternal exam, um, if you're lucky and, and you feel a firm, tender uterus, you can get a real good clue that the abruption has happened. Sometimes abruption will happen, and you don't get that. So it's, 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 if it's positive, it's great. If it's negative, it doesn't mean anything. Also, obviously, if there's blood or amniotic fluid in the vagina, that helps you in saying, OK, you know, there's been bleeding. There could be an abruption going on. Um, but oftentimes, you don't get either one of these things, and so you have to go to plan B, which is ultrasound and fetal monitoring. This is sort of like now the hallmark for trying to uh, estimate whether the fetus is in trouble or not in a woman that looks pretty good. So you get your trauma patient in, you look at them, they all look fine, and say, so, well, but I'm not so sure what's going on with the baby, how do I figure this out? And they do this thing called tocolytic monitoring. They put a, a band on the woman's abdomen, which monitors fetal contractions and the fetal heart rate, and they get a tracing. I'll show what that looks like in a minute. Um, And they'll do this for four to six hours. They only do this after the 20th week of gestation because there's still nobody, no matter how good you are, no one's been able to keep a baby alive if they come out before 20 weeks. So there's no point in doing this in an 18 or a 16 week pregnant female because the baby's not resuscitable anyway. So if they go on to have a spontaneous abortion, there's nothing to do about it anyway. Uh, But after the 20th week, you'll see OB will take them and they'll monitor them for four to six hours, and they'll look for certain uh, abnormalities. They'll look for persistent bradycardia, fetal tachycardia greater than 180, loss of beat-to-beat variability, late D cells. And if they see these kind of things, they will consider, if the fetus is viable, uh, a possible emergency C-section because of uh, signs of fetal distress due to an abruption. This is what the stuff looks like. I'm sure you've probably all been through. Well, maybe the interns haven't. But everybody else has been through OB, and they sort of know what this looks like. Um, But these things are pretty helpful. And they get progressively moved down the slide here. This is sort of like the worst thing. but, uh, normally, as the, as the, the uterus contracts, uh, there might be, with the contraction, not like this, which is a delayed deceleration. You might see some deceleration on top of the contraction, but it shouldn't be late. A lot of times, though, you don't see much of anything, and you should see, like, this beat-to-beat variability. You know, the heart rate goes up to 150, 157, down to 137, and back and forth. That's a healthy baby. Um, and so these are some of the things they will utilize to help them make a decision. Is an abruption present? Say, well, well then why don't you get an ultrasound? Ultrasound li- is just like everything else. It's great if it's positive. If you see bleeding, you see an abrupted placenta, you're good. But if you don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not there. So it's very specific, but not very sensitive. And we are in the sensitivity business. And so because we can't be sensitive enough with ultrasound, we will rely on this. And by the way, so does OB. Um, so if uh, there is a uh, uh, there is contractions that are less than one every 10 minutes after four hours, Um, They will consider sending them home. Uh, We wouldn't do this uh, as emergency physicians, uh, and we probably won't ever have to, but if you're practicing in a rural area, um, ideally you really wouldn't want to send the patient home until the contractions essentially stopped. Uh, But the literature, for what it's worth, says that if there's um, uh, contractions less than one every 10 minutes after four hours, you're in good shape. What if there's one more than every 10 minutes after four hours? Well, you're in bad shape because there's a 20% risk of an abruption. So that's too high, definitely too high. That person gets admitted. That's easy. All right. Uh, this is sort of what we summarized earlier. Um, all right. So now, how do we manage these people? And of course, it's going to depend whether they have blunt trauma or penetrating trauma. So uh, when we're going to divide that into those two categories, and then we'll subdivide the penetrating trauma a little bit as well. So um, if they uh, have blunt trauma. One of the biggest risks we face is preterm labor. You can feel sort of good about the fact that you can't stop it, because it's really hard and very few people can. It's a really difficult thing to stop. Uh, you end up using fairly toxic agents, like uh, ibuprofen and, uh, and, and those kind of uh, things, which are generally contraindicated. They do stop. Um, uh, uh, uterine contractions, but they can be fairly toxic to the fetus, and it's something we wouldn't use anyway. And even when they do use them, sometimes it doesn't work. So this is something that's really frustrating to deal with and, and hard to treat, and we would not get involved with that. Uterine rupture is not something we really worry about. Okay? It's just, it's not common. I mean, our job is to worry about all the common things, which is basically abruption. For what it's worth, it's less than 1% of the cases. If you do see it, it's essentially 100% fatal to the baby. So you don't have to bust your, your, your don't worry about it. Don't get a heart attack over trying to resuscitate uh, a baby that's, uh, that where the uterus is ruptured. Basically, it's concentrated on the mother. Because the, the mortality for for the, the, the uh, mother is actually fairly low if you're good at it. So you want to focus on resuscitating the mother. If there's uterine rupture, uh, essentially um, the, by that, the time that that's happened is usually, you know, out in the field. The baby, by the time they arrive, is, is usually dead. So that's it's not a, should be a focus of your concern. All right, placental abruption. We've talked about that. That is the thing we we worry about most. Uh, direct fetal injuries happen, but there's nothing we can do about those anyway. And so we want to focus on the things that we can do something about. All right, so in it, uh, it, when a woman comes into the third trimester that's had blunt abdominal trauma, essentially the physical exam I alluded to is not remo- reliable. A lot of volume, they can be bleeding, they can look great, they don't have peritonitis, they may not have a tender uterus, so what are you going to do? Um, you could do peritoneal lavage. This used to be what we all did way back when. I don't know if there's anybody here as old as I am. Probably not. We used to do this all the time. Uh, it is safe for what it's worth in pregnancy if you have to do this, if you can't get your CT scanners down. Uh, and it's it's useful in all these kind of conditions, because uh, it'll tell you what's going on inside the abdomen. Um, you can use ultrasound. We do that now with the fast exam. And you can also use the CT scan. With regards to the CT scan, there is really minimal risk after the 20th week. And that's important because before the 20th week, there's really not much you can do about the baby anyway. If their mom's really in trouble, the fetus isn't isn't viable anyway. But after the 20th week, in theory, the fetus is. um, And after the 20th week, it is also relatively resistant to radiation. And we've already had one M&M in the past uh, 12 months where the lack of getting a CT scan caused significant morbidity. Uh, not mortality, fortunately, but significant morbidity. And in this situation, failure to get a CT can kill two people. Uh, and so again, it's not something you leap to willy nilly, but. If you need the CT, you need the CT, and you can let the radiologist and the OB person, you know, worry about oh the radiation. Your job is to do is to save the baby and to save the mother, and CT scans can be life-saving. So keep that in mind. If the patient is sick, when in doubt, get the CT scan. Gunshot wounds. Um, These are the other. There's going to be two forms of penetrating trauma: stab wounds and gunshots. Essentially. Gunshots are easy because the path of the bullet can be anywhere. We don't know where it's going. Those essentially all go to the OR. Uh, as far as we're concerned, all gunshot wounds should be explored. Now there is some literature about certain kinds of things where you know, they bob and weave and they may, may elect on the surgeon's part not to take them to the OR. As far as we're concerned, that's the fallback. Gunshot wound to the abdomen, you call the surgeon, they need to go to the OR. Yes? That's reference being explored. Pardon? We're not doing anything by exploring. No, no, no. But, but the point being, the expectation is to get them ready to go to the OR because the, the general fallback position is the general standard of care is gunshot wounds to the abdomen get explored. Um, the uh, mortality for the fetus is pretty high. It can be as high as 75, 80%. A lot, excuse me, morbidity. The mortality can be as high as, as, as 50 to 60%. Um, so this is, this is not a, a, a low-risk uh, issue to the baby at all. And even for the mother, there's a 20% risk of other injuries. Okay, now, the uterus, especially in the third trimester, tends to be like a bulletproof vest. So if you get shot in the abdomen, it usually ends up in the uterus, and the rest of your body is pretty much OK. However, as we know, bullets travel around, and you can still end up with um, a, a visceral injury. And at 20%, that's too high, so they get explored. Stab wounds are a little different. It depends where you get stabbed. If you're stabbed in the lower abdomen um, and you're unstable, it's an easy, you know, hypotensive, God forbid, then you go to the OR, not a big deal. But if they get stabbed in the lower abdomen and they come in and they look well, then essentially we sort of step back and we do a more traditional trauma evaluation. We'll get the ultrasounds, we'll do a lot of other sort of non-invasive stuff because isolated stab wounds to the uterus can be managed without surgery at all. Uh, also, there isn't a whole lot in the lower abdomen by the time you're in your 30th week of pregnancy. Almost everything that's down there has been moved. So, there about all you can hit with a stab wound to the lower abdomen is the uterus. And since it depends, many uterine injuries are not managed operatively, or they'll go in and sometimes repair the uterus and do nothing else. So, there, it's, it's a much less intense evaluation. So, these individuals can be managed expectantly, and you would expect to see a sort of a, a slower pace by the surgeon's trauma and OB with these kinds of injuries. When you're dealing with upper abdominal injuries, generally speaking, this is like a gunshot wound. Because to stab a third trimester pregnant woman in the upper abdomen is like fishing in a stocked pond. You're almost always going to hit something. There's just, just very unlikely, it'd be very hard to miss something. Because, again, everything has been moved. Everything that was down there is now up here. So it's very hard to stab somebody in the upper abdomen and not hit something. So uh, they need to go in. The other thing that's really critical is even if miraculously you missed all the solid organs, if you hit the diaphragm, it's just definitely a smoldering time bomb. Because if they go into labor and they perfed their diaphragm, their uterus ends up in the diaphragm and into their their chest, it's a catastrophe for baby and mother. So you don't want to miss a perforated diaphragm. And so for that reason alone, many times I'll take them to the OR to explore them to make sure that they can go into labor safely. All right, um, chest wound, just remember the diaphragms are high, so you want to stick your finger in, if you're putting a chest tube in a pregnant woman, make sure your finger is in the chest cavity, because the diaphragm is going to be a lot higher. Head injuries, no big deal there. Just remember that uh, a woman that comes in with hypertension and comatose uh, after a car accident, but the car was hardly damaged at all. You can't figure out why she's so, how could you get a subdural? How could you have a bleed? It might not be any of those things. She may have just had an eclamptic seizure. So, young woman, third trimester, hypertensive comatose, think not just head trauma, think eclampsia because the treatment 's totally different they don 't need to go to the o r for their head, they need to go to the o r for their belly for their, to deliver the baby, so very important not to get fooled by that all right postmortem c section essentially, we do this uh, only if the um, uterus is above excuse, above the uh, the fundus of the uterus is above the um, the uh, embolicus because that gets you above the 20th week, which gets you into the 50th percentile of survival. It's nice if you can see evidence of fetal life by ultrasound, you know the heart's still beating. All bite slowly, it still may be there. Also, there are times when even if the baby is dead, one might do a crash C-section if one believes it will improve resuscitation of the mother, because that way you can cross clamp the aorta. All right, so this is what you're up against when you're- Right. When you cross-clamp the aorta, by the way, you've killed the baby. So you want to make sure that the baby's already dead. So but if the, the c-section, getting the baby out, actually, too, has some... Right, right. So what, because what you eventually want to do is take the cross-clamp off the aorta. And if you can get the baby out of the uterus, you can decrease the amount of perfusion to the uterus and decrease the amount of bleeding associated with that and make them at least improve, at least so the theory goes. I've not read, I mean, there are not a lot of large prospective randomized trials on this, obviously. But the anecdotal, the limited experience that we have seem to suggest that that might be useful. Anyway, this is the time. So this is, from the time the mom's heart stops beating, you really have about 10 minutes or so to get the baby out and still have a reasonably intact human being when you're done. Uh, once you get out to about 15 minutes, the prognosis gets really bad. And then even if you resuscitate the baby because their hearts are so good, their brains are not. And then you've basically not done anybody a favor. So this is something we want to keep in mind. If we know that there's been a prolonged extrication uh, and there's been at least a period of 15 to 20 minutes of cardiac arrest, probably doing a C-section to save the baby is no longer an option. You would only consider that if you wanted to save the mother. And in that situation, you might end up doing a thoracotomy and cross-clamping the aorta, get the baby out, and then you can open up the, uh, take off the cross-clamp. All right, so this is how you do it. I'll just show you the picture real quick. You make a very large incision. This is not. Brain surgery. I mean, this is really gross stuff. So, from the xiphoid, one big incision all the way to the symphysis pubis. Obviously, OB does it differently because they've done about 3,000 of these. We haven't. So, we need as big an operating area as we can get. Okay, the uterus, this is usually a third trimester person, is going to pop up. You're going to see it's going to be pretty big. You make a small incision uh, here with the scalpel, then you stop. You take the rest of your incision down with scissors. Okay, you do not want to be putting scalpels through the uterus, it's really bad form. So, uh, you use the scissors uh, and then you extract the baby. And again, we've talked about the, the issues. Uh, and if you're trying to do the, the um, C section to save the baby, don't cross clamp the aorta. All right, so this is this 28 year old gal we looked at. Basically, it's blunt trauma. She comes in, gets two IVs, left lateral to cube. Obviously, that's not going to be possible because she's pure restored, so we're going to push the uterus to the left. Uh, off the vena cava, uh, she's going to get a bunch of lab tests, she's going to get ultrasounds, we're going to try to get a sense of whether the the, the fetus is, is doing well or not, and then uh, we're going to stay away from pressors if we possibly can, and then when she arrests, that would be time, you, you've got about five to ten minutes to get the baby out, you would do a thoracotomy, but you would not cross-clamp the aorta, you would get the baby out, and then after the baby is removed, then you would cross-clamp the aorta. All right, so any questions about anything? A lot of stuff here. Again, most of this is going to have to do with not these kind of pre-arrestoid people, but viable human beings who have uh, a risk of abruption to the baby, and that's the biggest issue we're going to deal with. And all these other things are going to help you try and adjust to that. Yes. So, if it got to the point where you wanted to use pressors, what would be the preferred pressor for a pregnant
1: woman, or is there
0: nothing? They all have the same problem. I mean, um, if you if you go to any pressor, be it um, uh, leave them dead or dopamine, in order to get the pressor effect you 're going to end up cross basically scrunching down the vessels that perfuse the uterus so they 're all going to have the same badness so it 's really um, a situation there there are situations where it 's necessary i mean she 's going to have to write the baby i mean she may not be thirty five weeks pregnant she may only be twelve weeks or eleven weeks, and you know, it 's not a viable baby anyway at that point, and so you can 't go in and get it, and she 's dying and so you know, pressures might be life-saving, and so you use them. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not. The, there is a, a much higher cost to doing that, in, than in the non-pregnant state. That's all. All right. Good. Thanks.